You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is longtime Forbes columnist, Dr. Gary Schilling. Uh, I know you're going to appreciate the conversation I have with Dr. Schilling. He's going to talk to you about his outlook for investing and the markets. Uh, Dr. Schilling was on the program about six months ago, and he suggested that uh, you should be long U.S. Treasuries, meaning you should buy U.S. Treasuries. And during that time, uh, U.S. Treasuries have soared. So certainly, he comes back to the program with a lot of credibility today. So uh, certainly looking forward to that conversation. I want to talk to you a bit in this segment about something called the U.S. Dollar Index. Because we hear often that the dollar is strong or the dollar is weak. And I want to talk to you today a bit about the metrics that are used to measure the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. Now, the U.S. dollar index measures the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar, but it doesn't measure the absolute purchasing power. It measures the purchasing power relative to the purchasing power of the currencies of the six major trading partners of the United States. So how does this differ from absolute purchasing power? Well, I have talked about this topic on the program in the past, but today I want to do so from a little different perspective. Now, if you're a regular listener of RLA Radio, you probably remember that a couple months ago, I had a guest on the program by the name of John Williams. John Williams is an economist who does an extensive amount of work in this area. Mr. Williams has a website, shadowstats.com, and on that website, Mr. Williams tracks economic data using methodologies that have been used in the past. In other words, he attempts to calculate the inflation rate and the unemployment rate using the same calculation methods that were used previously. And as many of you know, as time has passed, the tracking and reporting structures of the most followed economic data has changed. In other words, the Washington politicians have changed the calculation methodologies because no politician wants to see bad economic numbers reported. So, as a result, unemployment levels are calculated differently now than they were in the past. The way inflation is calculated is different now than it was in the past. And, of course, not surprisingly, these current calculation methods, as I alluded to earlier, make the reported economic data look more favorable. Now, if we compare the official inflation rate calculation today versus the calculation method that was used 30 years ago, we get two significantly different numbers. Going back to John Williams' website, the official inflation rate is now about 2%. And I'm using, of course, round numbers here. But when you use the 1980-based inflation calculation, the real rate of inflation today is just under 10%. Now, on the website Shadow Stats, Mr. Williams publishes several charts. But if you were to just do a rough comparison, 
the difference in the current reported inflation rate and the inflation rate that would have been reported using the calculation methodologies of 1980 are about 8% difference. Now, over time, that creates a huge disparity between reported inflation and the real inflation rate. And of course, it's the real inflation rate that we all feel when we buy things. Now, if you go back to the beginning of this century, calendar year 2000, and you look at the official consumer price index each year, and I did that preparing for today's program, I went to the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank's website, and I pulled the CPI data, the consumer price index data, and that is the measure that is most often used to measure inflation. Now, if I were to take a look at the official inflation rate each year, they would range from a high of 3.8% in 2008 to a low of negative 0.4% in 2009. Now, by my calculations, the average is 2.19%, which is about the current reported inflation rate. Now, this next calculation that I'm going to share with you is not scientific, but it does give you a better idea as, how the, as to how the official inflation rate rather compares with the actual real-world rate of inflation. Now, assuming an item cost a dollar in 2000, based on the infi- official inflation rate, that item should cost about $1.50 today. If it costs a dollar in 2000, should cost $1.50 today. So, if you paid $100,000 for something in calendar year 2000 today, using the official reported inflation rate, it would cost about 50% more, or about $150,000. Now let's take a look at reality. Let's look at an item that maybe some of you are thinking about purchasing or you have purchased. A base model Ford F-150 pickup in calendar year 2000 stickered for $15,520. Today, a base model Ford F-150 pickup is slightly less than twice that. So the official inflation rate tells us that should sell for about 150%, about $22,000, and yet it sells for just under $30,000. Now, we could take a look at Census Bureau data and look at the price of a home. In 2000, according to the Census Bureau, the average home sale price was 163,500 and the median price was $200,300, 200300. Now the median as you all know simply means that half of the homes that transferred ownership in 2000 sold for more than 203,000 and the other half uh, sold for below that. Now, presently, the average home sale price is, again, almost double, about $300,000, and the median price is $362,000. So there are many, many examples of this disparity that I'll call the reported versus the reality gap, and many are even more extreme than the ones I'm sharing with you. But here's the point of this discussion. The official inflation rate is really 
just the U.S. dollar devaluation rate. It's the official measure of the loss of purchasing power of the currency. The reality is that the real loss of purchasing power exceeds the official reported rate by a good measure. It doesn't matter whose numbers you use, we can certainly all agree that it exceeds the official reported rate by a good number. And the reason the U.S. dollar index is not a good metric to use to determine the purchasing power of the currency is, as I've already stated, it's a relative measure. It measures the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar against other world currencies. It doesn't measure the absolute purchasing power. See, nearly every country in the world is devaluing its currency. The U.S. dollar index just gives you an indication as to whether the U.S. dollar is being devalued faster or is being devalued more slowly relative to other fiat currencies. Now, worldwide, we have easy money policies being pursued by central banks. And easy money policies, like negative interest rates and quantitative easing, those policies will all accelerate this devaluation process. And as I've stated here on the radio program many times before, there are only three ways to deal with sovereign debt. You raise taxes, you cut spending, or print currency, and it seems that printing currency is the preferred current policy of world central banks. Now, I'm going to talk more about this in the last segment of today's program, but here's what we want to close with. If you haven't taken steps to protect your portfolio from potential deflation in which the value of stocks may decline, as well as the effects of inflation, whose effects we just discussed, you should go to the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, where there are a number of free resources available. You could also go to socialsecuritydinner.com, where we have one more educational event uh, coming up this year where we talk about these issues and talk about the two-bucket approach. But certainly... When you study history and take a look at what's happened when currencies have been devalued, it's important for you to be educated on these matters now. So again, the website, socialsecuritydinner.com. I'll be back after these words with Dr. Gary Schilling. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, if you're not a reader of uh, Dr. Schilling's Insight newsletter, I would encourage you to check it out. It is uh, easily the most comprehensive monthly publication that I am aware of. It's 30 to 40 pages each month, and it includes extensive overviews on the economy, uh, exhaustive investigations of key economic indicators and how they might affect your investment portfolio. And if you'd like to get more information about the newsletter, you could call 888-346-7444, or you can visit the website agaryshilling.com, and I'll be giving that uh, information uh, later in this segment. Dr. Schilling, welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you, Dennis. Well, Gary, let me just jump in, because you make in your November... Insight newsletter, 
you, you open with a couple bold statements. Uh, you said that the U.S. consumer is strained, will probably retrench in the coming quarters, guaranteeing a recession. That's pretty strong language. How can you be so sure? Well, the rest of the economy is in recession. Capital spending is declining. Housing is going nowhere. The foreign trade sector is weak. Uh, if you look at the economy, excluding the consumer segment, in both the second and third quarters, it declined. So if the consumer gives up the ghost, uh, all it takes is modest declines elsewhere. Consumer spending doesn't, uh, in, in inflation-adjusted terms, sometimes declines in recession, sometimes doesn't. But it slows growth, and so when the growth is slow in that 70% of GDP, then all it takes is uh, weakness elsewhere to give you a decline in the total, which if you have two quarters of it, that's a normal sort of shortcut definition for a recession. Now, you also state, Gary, that ongoing polarization of incomes and assets will have profound political and economic effects for many years. And uh, I'd like to have you maybe comment on... uh, political effects. Uh, what, what do you see in the future as a result of this? And and maybe give the listeners a little background as to what you mean by polarization of incomes and assets. Well, what we've what we seen for a long time, actually data going back to 1966, is, is income shares uh, moving in different directions. Now, these are shares. These aren't levels of income. But the top 20% share has been constantly increasing speeding up recently and the other four quintiles have been declining now it's one thing if your share of income is declining but if you're not gaining purchasing power at the same time which is what's happened in the last 10 years then that makes people mad as hell and i think that's given given way to uh to uh, populism the basic reason for this is is uh, lack of, of income growth for most people is uh, i think quite simply globalization movement of of many high-paid manufacturing jobs and related jobs from from the U.S., from Canada, from Western Europe to China and other Asian countries, and it has it has it has resulted in almost no growth in in real inflation-adjusted uh, purchasing power for most people for over a decade. Now, what's happening as a result is that is that uh, they are turning away from the political center. Uh, they're they're saying the mainstream politicians haven't done the job, so they're going to the extreme, extreme right, the the far left. I think that's what got Trump elected. I think it was back, uh, back of Brexit in in uh, in UK, and of course now we have uh, we have coming up the 2020 election, and we have uh, the uh, the liberal Democrats, uh, particularly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, appealing to this, particularly millennials who have. Who have uh, really not had the kind of income growth? They can't afford houses. They've really got stressed. I go into a lot of details in this uh, November report and in uh, our monthly publication, Insight. But they are they are really stressed. And these are the people that these uh, liberal Democrats are, are are appealing to. And I think if if one of them it turns out to be the Democratic candidate and Trump is a Republican, the 2020 election could be interesting. It could be the most interesting election in that regard, uh, measuring the political mood of the country since the 1932 election, which issued in the New Deal. And of course, that was a response to the uh, 1930s, uh, great re- well, the late 20s, early 20s, great, re- great depression. 
So in your uh, newsletter, just to drill down on that point, Gary, you, you mentioned that uh, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden wants to mark assets to market and tax the annual increases as income, even if the assets aren't sold. And now, obviously, those taxes aren't paid until an asset is sold. And then you just mentioned Elizabeth Warren, who's proposing this wealth tax. Um, if such policies are implemented, what is your opinion as to how the economy is affected? Well, it, getting there, of course, is a is a is a lot of steps between here and there. Uh, getting through Congress, getting through Supreme Court challenges, a lot of things, and you go back to the New Deal, and and uh, a lot of those programs were never implemented because of uh, being shot down by the Supreme Court. But your question is, what happens if they were implemented? I, I think it would be extremely disruptive because you would have, uh, first of all, how do you measure how do you measure assets so you can tax them? Annually, and it and it certainly induces all kinds of of uh, people hiding assets. Income is income is relatively easy to define for the for the IRS. But assets, how do you value them? How do you decide some guy's got a ranch in Colorado, and you say, well, they did appreciate this year. Well, how do you how do you really know? Uh, how do how do you measure that? So the measurement is very difficult, and it, it encourages people to to hide them. Attempts in Europe to to tax assets really didn't work. What happened? A lot of people, just uh, uh, high income, high high net worth people, simply moved to other jurisdictions. And it's kind of like in this country, you have people, including the president, who's moving out of New York to to Florida, where the taxes. Now this is this is income taxes. It's not a state. It's it's and well, it's a state taxes too, but it's not asset taxes. But you see, a lot of people simply they they pull up roots and they move to lower tax jurisdictions. So very difficult to implement, extremely disruptive in in any event. Now, Gary, you also mentioned uh, in your newsletter that uh, consumers uh, are expecting lower inflation over the next several years, and uh, you know your book. Uh, which is an excellent book, uh, The Age of Deleveraging. And I, I, if I'm mispronouncing uh, the title, please correct me. Uh, no, but, that's correct. But, but you talk about um, this whole idea of deleveraging, and, and does is that going to lead to deflation? You say lower inflation, but do you actually see deflation on the horizon? Well, we, 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 could, very well, we could very well be there and, and, or, or get there soon uh, because of this huge excess supply around the world, globalization being the key driver. You know, I think inflation is a pretty simple phenomenon. When you have more demand than supply, uh, prices go up. When you have more supply than demand, prices go down. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the nation's history going back to 1749, now I'm not sure too, sh- sure about 1748, but from 1749 <laughs> on, if you divide all the years between wartime and peacetime, you find in wartime that wholesale prices rose on average 8%. Why? Because the government was spending tremendous amounts of money on top of a fully employed economy. But in peacetime, we actually on average had deflation of, of minus 1.3% per year. Uh, so so if, if you're looking at a, a peacetime environment, uh, and particularly with globalization, and looking at the whole world from a supply standpoint and not just the U.S., I think there is a strong case for uh, for deflation. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, His website is agaryschilling.com. And if you'd like to get more information about his excellent Insight newsletter, uh, you can call 888-346-7444, and I would encourage you to do that. Gary, uh, assuming we are going into recession, um, what will be the response of the Fed? 
Well, the Fed would be uh, patriotically reducing rates as usual, and they've already started on that. They've already started on that path. Um, they, they, by their own uh, decision, are zero bound, meaning they don't want to go below zero on on their uh, overnight reference rate. They've seen that in Japan and in and in Europe with the European Central Bank, both with negative uh, negative rates. And far from encouraging people to borrow and spend, it's encouraged people to save because they say, I'm not making enough on my retirement money. I'm going to have to save even more, spend less to build up those funds. So they don't want to go below zero. So they get to zero. And uh, where do they go from there? Well, uh, they, they, they may put some – they're fuzzing up the definitions. They might actually go below zero as long as it averages out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a backdoor way of doing it. But they might go back to quantitative easing, uh, buying more securities. But if we see the, the history of that, when they did that really starting after the, the Great Recession – uh, it, it fueled a tremendous stock market appreciation, but it never really got into the spending, spending stream. We had the slowest economic recovery of any in the t- entire post-World War II period. Yeah, and Gary, you talk about in your in your most recent Inside Newsletter um, the the fact that you know there is a possibility maybe the Fed would uh, go go close to negative anyway, despite the lack of success that we've seen in other parts of the world. How do you see these? You know, I, th- I think there's like 17 trillion, if my numbers are are close to correct, of of negative yielding sovereign debt around the world. How do you see this whole thing unwinding? Well, I'll tell you that is a that is a very good question, and and uh, I, I've got a, a piece in there noting that that um, you've really had, in terms of of interest rates uh, adjusted for inflation, uh, uh, they've been they've been zero for ten years. Now, I think what's happening is that it, we're getting a gradual adaptation to it, and one of the one of the features is these negative yielding securities, uh, particularly in in Europe. Uh, but you've also got some other uh, situations where pension funds, for example, uh, they've reduced their targets for their annual uh, returns from an average of about eight percent, and they're now down to seven and a half percent. Well, that's just not realistic in today's investment environment. So what happens? A lot of them are simply taking more risk, and and you know that cannot have a very good good outcome when they they move out, they move into private equity, they move into hedge funds. They haven't worked too well. Uh, they're moved into uh, all sorts of uh, commodities. Uh, they moved away from conventional stocks and bonds that pension funds traditionally held because they really feel tremendous pressure, and that's true of endowment funds. Uh, you have countries uh, even even. Uh, even Argentina, which is a financial basket case, issued a 100-year bond. It won't mature for 100 years. Well, you know how many how many financial crises is Argentina going to be through in 100 years? I mean, <laughs> they get through a dozen in a dozen in 20 years. <laughs> uh, but it, it, uh, there's this tremendous zeal for yield. People reaching for returns. They're not really to. Ex- they're not accepting reality, even though it's been there for about 10 years of of, of zero. Inflation-adjusted interest rates, and, and in other words, if you want an interest rate after inflation more than zero, you got to take greater risk to get there. And and uh, it, it's interesting; uh, it's it's been that way for ten years. But I think people thought that well, this is only temporary. Now it's seeping in, and isn't so. They're they're stretching for uh, return. This what I call zeal for yield. 
Well, unfortunately, a segment goes by awfully quick when I'm chatting with Dr. Schilling. The good news is he'll be back for another segment after these words. I would encourage you to check out his Insight newsletter by going to agaryshilling.com or calling 888-346-7444. I'll be back with Gary after these words. Stay with us. I am Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I have the distinct pleasure of chatting once again today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling is, uh, uh, I, I believe you've been a Forbes columnist for over 40 years, Gary. Um, you uh, have a terrific newsletter titled Insight uh, that's uh, extremely comprehensive every month, and I would encourage the listeners to learn more about it by visiting agaryshilling.com or uh, calling 888 888- Three four six seven four four four, and and Gary. Prior to the break, um, we were talking about pensions, and you know, in the whole subject of of retirement, you 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 go down the road in your in your insight about and talk about this economic gap. And when you look at the economic gap between those that are say sixty five plus and younger, uh, you had some stats in there that, that surprised me, and I thought I was fairly well um, educated on these matters. Can, can you explain what you mean by economic gap? Well, what's happened is, is that the post-war babies are in, are in pretty good financial shape. Uh, they grew up after World War II. There was a fairly strong economic growth, uh, labor markets, uh, people moved up, and also many of them had had what are called uh, fixed benefit uh, pension funds, uh, and that meant that somebody retired and they got a set pension fund, maybe with a cost of living escalator, but it was a set amount of money paid uh, for life. Uh, now, what's happened in the last 20 years is they have virtually disappeared in favor of of uh, of, of, of fixed contributions pension funds. In other words, the the uh, companies contribute to a retiree account, and then the retiree can invest that money. They can pick, a lot of times they have a choice of what type of investments they want to be in. Now, a couple of problems there. One is that a lot of people have simply not left that money in there. They've drawn it out. Companies and government and everybody else is encouraging people to leave that money in there. But when people change jobs, for example, a lot of them do not do not transfer the, those uh, those 401ks is the most common form uh, to a new employer. Uh, I think it's something like uh, 40% of people leaving jobs they they take their money out. Uh, so they, they, that so where you had the post-war babies they had the uh, the, the fixed benefit uh, pension funds. Now the the later generations don't have those, and a lot of people have been very poor savers. And particularly the millennials, uh, I mean, these people are in difficult financial shape. There's a lot of other things besides the pension funds. One is that a lot of these people went to work uh, right after the Great Recession, the two, 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 uh, 2007, 2009. And it's interesting that history shows that people who go to work five years after a, a major recession, uh, their their salary progressions, they never catch up. Now, obviously, salaries tend to rise with people's experience and age after that, but they never catch up 
And that's that's what's happening now. So a lot of these people are way behind, and of course they can't afford houses. They uh, they don't have the down payments, uh, and house prices have declined for the first time since the depression with the subprime market uh, subprime mortgage collapse. And people realize housing is such a great investment, uh, but it's 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 a, it's really is a is a, a, a kind of a split population where you have the post-war babies on the one end who are, are in pretty good shape, people in the middle okay, but then the millennials, uh, they're they're really in very stressed condition. And those are the ones that, that I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are appealing to. They're saying, hey, you're, you've been screwed, and we're going to redistribute income. We're, we're going to redistribute assets in your favor. Gary, you uh, on that same uh, line of, of thought, I thought you had a very interesting comment in your uh, November issue of Insight. Um, you suggested that uh, even though we have, I think it was 40% of those 25 to 34 held a bachelor's degree, which is significantly higher than the boomers, um, and yet uh, they're, they're finding that those college degrees really maybe aren't doing them a lot of good. So do you see a shift in the way people are going to view and, and maybe participate in higher education? Yeah, we've been uh, talking about this for years, actually, because, you know, the, the history of this country is that people with college degrees earn more than people with high school degrees, although uh, New York Federal Reserve Board, uh, uh, Bank study recently showed that, that uh, you know, 40% of these people uh, who've been out of college five years are working in jobs that only require a high school education. But what is happening is that people are realizing that that uh, college doesn't make it smart. Smart people go to college. In other words, you can say, yeah, there's a causality. You can say the correlation is there. College graduates are make more money, but that's because smart people go to college. You know, you can't prove causality with statistics. I guarantee you every time there's an eclipse of the sun, if we go outside and beat a drum, it'll go away. 100% correlation, no causality. <laughs> uh, so, so, and I think that's what's happening. People now, uh, students and their parents, they realize that here they are, they're taking four years out of the workforce, they're incurring huge uh, student debts, and they come out, uh, and, and these are not obviously everybody, but a lot of them uh, are, are coming out with degrees from second and, and third-rate institutions, and they find that they really, they really aren't really equipped for anything that's going to make money. Yeah, the smart people, particularly in STEM, uh, they're, they're going to do very well, but they're going to do well anyway. So I think there is a rethinking of the value of college. Gary, I want to go back, if we could, please, and talk a little bit about uh, home ownership and, and renting. And uh, you made an observation in your November Insight that uh, the, the the trend is really more toward people renting, even when they have means. Uh, can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, I, th I think there are a couple of things going on there. One is that a lot of people uh, simply can cannot meet higher uh, uh, mortgage standards now. They really tightened up after the sub uh, subprime mortgage collapse. A second thing that is a lot of single-family houses have been bought up by institutional investors. These aren't just mom and pops who buy an extra house down the street. Uh, they're buying tens and thousands of these houses. They're even building houses to rent, single-family houses, uh, because rents are rents are, are really a, more, a lot more attractive in many areas than owning the house. And uh, and another thing is that if you look at the statistic adjusted for inflation and for the fact that houses over time tend to get bigger and therefore inherently are worth more, house prices uh, in, in uh, since the early 70s 
have risen at a 1.1% annual rate. Okay. Now, somebody buys a house and they got a mortgage on it. Well, the mortgage rates, again, adjusted for inflation, have been 4.1%. So, in other words, it's cost you 3% a year to own the house. And that's not considering the, the taxes and the maintenance and, and everything else that goes to home ownership. Uh, so the idea a lot of people had earlier, they thought they were going to make a lot of money investing in houses. What really happened was uh, it was a it was a good deal in terms of forced saving. In other words, people took out a mortgage and they were forced to save by paying off that mortgage. But of course, what happened, particularly when you had the, the subprime mortgages, that people never you know they never paid off mortgages. They they uh, they simply they simply refinanced the house. But it's interesting that the length of time that people stayed in houses. If you go back, if you go back 20 years, it was six years. You go back 10 years, it was 10 years, and now it's 15 years. In other words, people are staying longer in houses. They really decide that, you know, flipping houses is not the road to riches. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling, and uh, we're chatting about his November Insight newsletter issue. And if you'd like more information about it, you can call 888-346-7444 or visit agaryshilling.com. So, Gary, talking about the fact that, uh, you know, we're headed for recession, uh, and, and in a recession, obviously, uh, you, you know, we, we have uh, potentially lower incomes, uh, we've got higher unemployment. Uh, do you see this trend of investors buying real estate maybe accelerating? Well, it, real estate has been one of these things where people have, have been uh, desperately searching for returns when they see when they say interest rates uh, where they are now and you know stocks have been basically they've they reached new highs recently but they've been basically flat for a year and so people have been have been uh, reaching out real estate is is always a, a, an area because it's highly leveraged uh, but let's say I think the trends there have been more uh, people buying uh, single family houses to rent out than they have. In other areas, uh, commercial real estate and so on, apartments uh, still very attractive. I personally have investments in in apartment uh, buildings, and uh, you got to have them relo- well located. You know, it's the location, location, location. Uh, the three important things in real estate. Uh, <laughs> right. But but I I I think that it's going to be that way. But uh, as far as as far as I, I think there's a, a tendency to to go overboard and people's zeal uh, for yield in, in real estate or anything else. you got to be careful. So, Gary, in the time we have left, uh, let's talk about uh, some investment themes. Uh, what's your outlook for stocks? Let's just stick with the major U.S. stock market indices. Well, stocks now are very expensive. If you look at a uh, what's called the, the cyclical adjusted price earnings ratio. It's over. It's uh, with the inflation adjusted earnings over the last 10 years. This is developed by Professor Robert Schiller at, at Yale. He got a Nobel, Nobel Prize for that and other things. Uh, but if you look at that price earnings ratio, uh, it, 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 would, it would take a 45% decline in, in uh, stock prices to bring it back to that long-term ratio that go back to 1880. Now you can say you can say that things are changed, but you know Sir John Templeton, uh, legendary investor, said the most dangerous words in the English language are "this time it's different." Uh, I, I tend to think that stocks are are very expensive, and you have some things going on. One of the things is that in the last 20 years, if you look at the shares of income, they've been shifting uh, in favor of profits and away from uh, away from uh, labor compensation. They're starting to move the other way. And we're in a democracy, and things never go one way uh, forever. 
So I rather suspect in future years, I'm not sure all the mechanism, but I think it's probably going to be more uh, swing toward labor compensation and, and away from away from profitability. Also, uh, and also, you know, I don't think we're going to have rip roaring growth. I mean, you, you fuel an awful lot of economic expansion and stocks and everything else uh, by huge uh, consumer spending fueled by debt started in the early 80s. People are now reversing that trend, working down debt. So, you know, I, I think stocks, uh, I, I think stocks in a recession, they certainly would get get hurt. Uh, if we had an average recession, they declined 22% peak to trough. That would take you on the S&P about 100 points lower than you were on on, uh, on Christmas Eve. Uh, not the end of the world, but beyond that, I, I don't think stocks are going to be the you know double-digit kind of performers that a lot of people thought they deserve. And Gary, in the time we have left, I think you were on about six months ago, and you had said at that time that you really liked uh, – that uh, you wanted to be long treasury bonds. That's certainly been a, a terrific uh, bit of advice as uh, yields have continued to decline and, and bonds have performed extremely well this year. Uh, more upside there in your in your view? Yeah, I think so. Back in uh, 1981, the yield on the 30-year uh, 30-year treasury was 14.6 percent. I said in print, we're we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime. My target was two percent. We actually got to two percent. Now it's on the yield. It's it's bounced off that. Now the whole point about buying treasuries, in my in my estimation, is I, it's not for yield. I couldn't care less what the yield is as long as it's going down. Because when the yield goes down, the price goes up. And as a matter of fact, since the earlys, uh, long treasuries have outperformed the S and P on a total return basis, including dividends, five point two times. Of course, they're only suitable for little old ladies and orphans. But I still think, I still think, with uh, with weak economy, with the safe haven status of treasuries, uh, with the prospects of deflation, I think there's probably further to go on on treasury. We've hit my target. I'm not pressing it too hard, but I still think that there's room to go uh, in terms of uh, treasury appreciation. Well, unfortunately, Gary, the clock says that we have to stop there. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, if uh, you uh, joined us late in the conversation, we've been chatting about uh, Dr. Schilling's Insight newsletter. And if you'd like to learn more, you can call 888-346-7444 or visit agaryshilling.com. And, uh, Gary, I'd love to have you back down the road. Thanks for joining us today. Same here. Look forward to the next time, Dennis. We will be back Bye. after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Glad you're listening in today. You know, in this segment, I want to expand on what I talked about in the first segment, where we're talking about currency creation, which ultimately devalues the currency. And when you study history, you see this pattern that has repeated itself time and time again, simply because there are only three ways to deal with public debt. You can raise taxes. You can cut spending, or you can print currency. Those are the only three possible ways to deal with public debt. And when debt levels get large enough, printing currency becomes the only option. Now, there are three other times in U.S. history that I want to cover very briefly in this segment. And we should dedicate this segment to all of our history teachers who probably told us that 
those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. That is certainly the case. Now, if you go all the way back 200 years, there was a central bank set up in the year 1817, and it was set up because the country was dealing with massive debts accumulated during the War of 1812. Now, this bank was called the Second Central Bank because there was one created at the time of the Revolutionary War for the same reason. But this bank could print currency. And after the bank's charter was not renewed 20 years later, state and regional banks were still allowed to issue currency. The end result was easy money and more widely available credit. Now, without widely available easy credit, the system can't reach its capacity for debt and asset price bubbles cannot form. In other words, for an asset price bubble to form, easy credit has to be available to fuel it. Now, this created in the 1830s, for a while anyway, an environment of prosperity. But as a result of this easy credit, a real estate bubble formed and subsequently burst. In fact, land offices throughout the country in the 1830s saw sales rocket. Between 1834 and 1836, sales totaled 37 million acres. And by 1836, land sales in the United States were 10 times greater than they were in 1830, just six years earlier. Think about that. 10 times greater in just six years. Then, in 1837, the Panic of 1837 saw all these bubbles burst. And of the 850 banks in existence in the U.S. in 1837, 350 of them failed completely. Turn the clock ahead to the time of the Civil War. In order to finance the Civil War, in 1863 and 1864, national banking acts were passed into law. Now, until these acts were passed, only state banks existed, and the federal government had no control over the banking system. The national banking acts, however, created nationally chartered banks, and these banks had as assets gold, silver, and government debt. Each bank could issue its own currency. Now, because they could print their own currency, and the currency was largely printed to fund the Civil War, after the war, easy credit was readily available because of all this money. I mean, the eternal truth is this. When money is created, it has to go somewhere. Well, there was a real estate bubble and a stock bubble that all came crashing down in 1873. That's when the Long Depression of 1873 set in. Prior to that time, mortgages were easy to get. Developers could get mortgage, uh, mortgages on half-built buildings that banks were taking as collateral. And again, easy credit allowed this bubble to form. The pattern repeated itself yet again in the 1920s. In 1913, the Federal Reserve Bank Today's Federal Reserve, the, the third central bank of the United States, was founded. Immediately, it reduced the backing of the U.S. dollar by gold from 100% backed by gold to just 40% backed by gold. That meant the money supply expanded 250%, and there was easy money and easy credit, 
and you know that the stock market formed a big bubble before finally crashing in 1929. So the pattern is clear. Whenever money is printed, there's a period of prosperity, there is a bubble that builds, and then the bubble bursts. Here's my point. As I talked about with Dr. Schilling today, there's over $17 trillion of sovereign debt worldwide yielding negative interest rates. That, from my perspective, is a first. And as I chatted with Dr. Schilling about, that has to unwind somehow. That's just not normal. And when it does, we're going to see a bubble burst again. So my question for you is, are you ready? And if you're not, or you've got questions, I would encourage you just to check out some of our free resources. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, Portfolio Watch. Uh, we just email you that letter once every week, Monday night at five o'clock. You could also attend one of our educational events where we talk about these matters as well as maximizing benefits from Social Security and taking advantage of current tax law to potentially reduce the tax liability on your retirement account. If you've not yet attended one of these free events, there is one left this year. All you have to do to register is go to socialsecuritydinner.com. The website again is socialsecuritydinner.com and I would encourage you to check that out as well. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. 